BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's up, family? Thank you for tuning in to the Dream Nation podcast. My name is Casanova. I'll be your host, and I'm excited to be bringing to you entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and trailblazers from around the world. Stay locked in with us because we're about to go on a journey that will change your life. What's up, Dream Nation? Today, we are back again with another, I'm sure, is going to be phenomenal episode. And I'll tell you, the reason why I'm so excited about this, and you could probably hear it in my voice, is because I feel like that I'm talking to family. And when I say that, it's just because when you have someone that you've been able to meet in such a short amount of time, but when you read their backstory, you just understand that there's a reason why you were connected with this person. Have you ever felt that? I'm sure that I'm not the only one. So without further ado, please help me in welcoming Miss Rhonda Britton to the show. Rhonda, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? Oh my gosh. Hello, Dream Nation. I'm so excited to be here because dreaming and and building a dream and having a dream is one of my favorite things in the whole world. And in order to do it, you got to be fearless. You got to be fearless. And that's what we're going to tap into. But before for, before we get into that, I always like to make sure that I could give the proper introduction. And I mean, just looking at your story, it's so incredible. But at the same time, how long that you've been able to be sustainable, you know, which is what a lot of people struggle with, no matter what the industry is. So let me ask, before you being featured on NBC and Fox and Oprah and Huffington Post and everything else, right, before the, the 20 year career. Let's take it back to when you were just a young girl and tell me who is Rhonda Britton? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, what I, what, gosh, that's such a good question. Who is Rhonda Britton? You know, I was just talking about this yesterday with my best friend. I think the thing that makes me, makes me Rhonda Britton is that I have a pure heart and I am committed to not only supporting myself and understanding how I am meant to live the life my soul intended, but helping others do it as do it as well. So, you know, I love the phrase live the life your soul intended because I don't want to create a life based on my head. I want to create a life based on my heart, right? I want to create a life that is, you know, kind of like my destiny. Hmm. So what makes me Rhonda Britton is probably I kept going no matter what, 
no matter how dark it was, no matter how deep it was, no matter how horrific it was, I kept going. And I'd be happy to, you know, share the worst day of my life whenever you think it's appropriate. But, you know, I think for me, it's just that I kept going and I kept, I kept going. Got it. I love it. And that's what we all need to hear. We all need to keep taking one step at a time. But let's talk about when you were a young girl, like what was the day in the life like of Rhonda, if you can remember back, were you someone who was always trying new things? Did you know your path? You know, because now you're an incredible speaker and teacher. But when you were young, was it like, what was that like for you? I I just wanted to like sing and dance. You know, that's all I wanted to do. I thought I was going to be a famous actress. You know, I just would put on shows for people. You know, my mother, one of my mom's best friends said to me years ago, she goes, your mom would always look at you as you're singing and dancing and put on a show. She'd look at you and go, you know, she might be famous yet. You know, Mm -hmm. so that was me. I just... Loved people. I went to church all the time. Church was one of my favorite places in the whole world. I would sing in choirs. I sang for shows. I had private voice lessons. And I remember I wanted to sing. And then when I was in high school, I had my first, you know, acting thing, right? My first uh, acting show. And my acting coach came up to me. And I grew up in a little tiny town. And, you know, there was just 100 people per class in the middle of nowhere. And my acting coach came up to me and said, you could be an actress. It took me years to actually fulfill that dream because I was so petrified of it, which is a whole story in itself. But I think me growing up is I just wanted, I just wanted to express myself. Hmm. And it's my definition of success, actually, is my definition of success is to have full self-expression. You know, if you're not expressing yourself fully, then you are not successful in being you. Wow. And I love that you said that. And I will want to tap into, first off, let's tap into that. Why? were you so afraid of it, you know, in the beginning? Because I feel like a lot of people, they are dealing with that right now. Why do you think you were so afraid of it? You know, I was, I was taught growing up that you have to be quiet, you know, like you, even though I was singing and dancing, that was appropriate because I was putting on a show. But otherwise, you know, nobody wanted to hear my feelings. We didn't talk about feelings. We didn't, you know, talk about dreams. There was no dreaming in my family. That, like, that was not the conversation we had. My father, my mother, they weren't, you know, dreamers per se. And even just the culture I lived in, in, the, uh, in Upper Michigan, it, that's just not what people do. They don't go and have a dream, you know? Hmm. They just work and then they just go home and then they have dinner and then they work. So I don't even think, besides like wanting to sing and dance, I didn't know how to actualize a dream. I didn't know how to put that in motion, but I also thought that was like somebody for somebody else and not me, even though it was kind of pulling me still. Like I, like I went to college and I minored in theater, like God forbid I major in theater, right? I got a minor in it. Right. And then I eventually through a course of events moved to Los Angeles to start acting, but it took me two years. I was paralyzed. I literally was waitressing. I didn't know what to do, even though in LA, you know, back then there were, you know, backstage and all these things like, here's what you do. But I was petrified to, to pick up that thing and go to an audition. I didn't know what I was doing. I was completely lost. And I didn't know how to get help. Like, I didn't know how to ask. I went through high school and college, get this, never asking a question. Because how I was raised is asking a question is bad. You're dumb. You're this. So you have to figure it out on your own. The only way it counts is how I grew up. The only way it counts is you have to figure it out by yourself. So here I am in Los Angeles wanting to be an actress. And for two years, literally two years, waitressing, sitting in my little studio apartment, frozen. 
And it wasn't until I met somebody where I was waitressing, my new waitressing place, that basically said, Rhonda, hey, here, this is what you do, A, B, and C. But I had no ability to ask. I had no ability to reach out. I had no, I just thought like, well, if, 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 if it's going to happen, I guess it's just going to happen. I don't know. I didn't know how to connect the dots. Wow. And so was there a lot of resentment? The fact that you decided you were going to move out, you were going to move to LA, right? And you were going to do your own thing. And just like you said, you know, you had to minor. Was that by choice or was it out of basically fear that someone else would would basically try to tear down your dreams when you said you minored rather than majored in theater? Oh, yeah. When I minored in theater, it's like that's a to major in it is like a silly thing. One, I didn't believe. Well, one, I didn't know that I knew anything. And, you know, you have to remember, I grew up in a little tiny town and now I'm going to the University of Minnesota, which at the time was the largest enrollment school in the country. So now there are people all over, you know, in the theater department that have been acting for decades, you know, like years, and they're professionals and they've done shows. And it's just, I couldn't compete. You know, when I grew up, I was a big fish in a little pond, right? There were three of us that are actors. So it was like, of course I'm good, right? But when you take that big fish and, you know, in a little pond and now you're the little fish in the big pond, it just was like, I can't compete with this. They're better than me. And mm. I had no, I didn't have enough self-esteem I didn't have enough self-confidence to actually believe I could do it. Now, this is the trick, is that if you would have met me, you would have thought I had confidence and self-esteem because I was really good at, hi, 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 right? Like I, 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 right, I was like, I ran for, I belonged to a sorority and I was like one of the leaders in the sorority. And then I was chosen to be the, the only woman college student on this finance committee for the entire University of Minnesota. I was the only woman and the only student, which was amazing, right? So it's kind of like, you know, I got these accolades, but not about anything that I really wanted. And so on the outside, it looked like I had it together. Hmm. But on the inside, I did not have it together at all. And because that was a break, right, there was the outside and the inside were so mismatched. I couldn't ask for help. I couldn't reach out. I couldn't go and take action on the things I wanted to because you already thought I was successful. You already thought I had it together. So I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to do that. And it's actually one of the reasons I do what I do today because, you know, when I first started, you know, recovering from the worst day of my life, I really realized that I didn't know how to do the very you know, like, like when you read a book, it says, love yourself. It's like, how do you love yourself if you don't love yourself? Like, I, right. I, you know, people just say like, oh, just do it. It's like, just do it. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Just do it. You know, what do you mean? Love yourself. What do you mean? Get confidence. I, I, I Tell me exactly what to do. And nobody really would tell me what to do. They would give me like, hey, do this. But it, but it wasn't literally step by step. Like, like, okay, Rhonda, now this is like, do this, right? Like, and so I'm dedicated to practical application to help people move forward because I needed that. I, I don't need, again, I, uh, you know, of course I want to inspire. You didn't need the motivation, forward. but you needed yeah. the tactical steps to get from point A to point Z. And not only tactical, but also just how do you go from being afraid to ask a question to have the courage to ask a question? So not only did I need tactical, I needed skills, I needed tools, and I needed to start having a different image of myself. You know, wow. I, I remember one of the biggest changes in my life was when I had the realization that what if everybody was right about me and I was wrong about me? Wow. 
What if everybody else is right? Because they'd be like, oh, Rhonda, you're great at this. Oh, Rhonda, you're good at this. Rhonda, you're, yeah. And they would put praise on me and I'd be like, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm really like inside, right? And I, and I started, I remember the day. I remember the day is crystal clear. And I was like, what if they're right and I'm wrong? Hmm. Like, what if I lived inside my compliments? What if I lived inside the things that people said about me? What if I lived <laughs> in my best press, so to speak, right? Hmm. And that was mind blowing to me that they could be right and I could be wrong. Cause I'd been told my whole life and convinced myself that, you know, I was this way. This is just who I was. I look good on the outside, but I couldn't make anything happen on the inside. So that's so powerful that you said you didn't believe enough in yourself. And the fact that you were saying, wow, could, how could someone else have more belief in me? And that's what I think that we experience a lot of the times. Talk to me about, was there ever a moment that started all of this negative self-talk or belief for you? Like, was there one day or one event that happened that maybe allowed you to start thinking that the negativity was the right way? Like, was there ever that one point? Oh, yeah. Well, I'll just tell you about the worst day of my life because the worst day of my life basically proved all my, all my negative self-talk was true. Hmm. And that I was in a trap that I didn't know how to get out of until, of course, many years later. So this is the worst day of my life. And, you know, everyone's got one and this is mine. And mine was when I was 14 years old. And like I said, I grew up in a little tiny town in Upper Michigan, 365 inches of snow a year, two restaurants, the fancy Douglas house and big boy. And my father and mother had just separated. And my father was coming over to take us out to Sunday brunch on Father's Day. And I don't know how you grew up, but we have three kids, two adults, five people. We never went out to eat. Like that was mm. way too much money. So the fact that he was coming over to take us to the fancy Douglas House buffet for Father's Day was like a miracle, right? And, and I knew it was only because he was trying to win my mom back, right? So we're getting all dressed up. My mom's putting on her blue eyeshadow, got, you know, fancy bouffant hairdo, her beehive. I've got a brand new dress she sewed me. My mother made all my clothes. And my sisters are fighting it out in the bathroom. My two sisters, we have one little bathroom. We have 850 square foot house. And my dad walks in, come on, come on, come on, because that's what dads do. And me and my mom start walking out with my dad. My two sisters still in the bathroom fighting it out. And dad starts sprinkling. And so my dad says he's got to get his coat from the car. And as he opens up the trunk of his car, I notice that he does not grab a coat, but he grabs a gun. And he starts yelling at my mother, you made me do this, you made me do this, and he fires. Now I start screaming, dad, what are you doing? Stop, what are you doing, dad? And he cocks the gun, points it at me, and I absolutely 100% believed I was next. He blinked, I blinked, we like literally just, I basically held my breath waiting to die. And my mother who already had one bullet in her sees that gun in my face and screams, no, don't. And my father realizing my mother's still alive takes that bullet intended for me and shoots my mother a second time. And that bullet goes through her abdomen, goes out her back, lands in the car horn. And for the next 20 minutes, all I hear is and then my father takes the gun, cocks it again, gets down on his knees, puts the gun to his head and fires. So in a matter of two minutes, I am the sole witness of watching my father murder my mother and commit suicide. Now, I don't know how other people responded, but this is how I responded. It's my fault. 
because I was the only one physically out there. I was the only one physically out there that could have stopped it. And I did nothing heroic. I didn't grab the gun. I didn't kick my father in the shins. I didn't even jump in front of my mother. You know, I didn't jump in front of my mother. And that moment, when you watch your mother die and you believe it's your fault, then happiness is off the table. You don't get to be happy ever again. Right. Don't get to be happy. I was 14. Wow. And, you know, basically that day, I like to say I split in two. It's really where I really where I split in two because, you know, on the outside, you know, still went finished high school, got a got straight A's, got a college scholarship. No, I'm fine. 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 And internally, I had this horrific feeling, one of guilt and shame, of course, that I was the only survivor but also just that I really did believe that there was something wrong with me. And growing up with a father who ends up killing your mom and then kills himself, you also go, okay, well, his blood runs through my veins. What am I capable of? So I was on one hand afraid of myself. I was on one hand, you know, just, I just thought there was something, there must be something seriously wrong with me. Right. And so I just basically split in two, went, went to high school. Like I said, thought, you know, just pretended my way through it went to college. Finally, you know, nobody knew my story, thought I could hide it, thought nobody knows it, right? Nobody knows my story. I'll be a different person. I'll be a different person. But you know, when you start stuffing it so deep down and then you find alcohol, well, let's just say alcohol. I had nightmares every night for decades. I father shooting me every night in my dreams. So alcohol became a way that I could sleep, avoid, deny. So I started drinking it was your coping mechanism. It was one of my coping mechanisms and one that I enjoyed, right? But the problem is I wasn't a fun drunk. (laughs) I was, I was, all my feelings of rage came out, right? Um, So here I am drinking and I end up getting three DUIs, end up trying to kill myself three times. And on my third suicide attempt, I realized I'm not very good at killing myself. Hmm. And I better figure out another way. Now, now I want to say something. During those years um, of me, you know, alcohol and DUIs and suicide, I read my first self-help book when I was 12. And I was a God girl ever since I was little. Like, you know, here I, I'd be reading the Bible, checking off, like, how many verses I read. So during that whole time, I went to therapy, workshops, read book. I mean, I was a voracious reader and, you know, went everywhere I could to get help. And it was all nice. It was inspiring. It was motivating. It was lovely, but it didn't, you know, it was good. It was like filling my toolbox up, you know, but it never took away the feeling that there was something wrong with me. So during that third suicide, after I got home from that third suicide attempt, and by the way, they put you in a psychiatric ward to value if you're crazy when you try to kill yourself three times and they deem me not crazy. I remember going home and went like, I have tried everything. I've gone to therapy. I've workshops, books, I've done everything I can. I've, I've, I've inner child work, you know, rebirthing, energy work, shamanism, you know, you name it. And I remember sitting down, I'll never forget it. I was sitting on the floor of my little studio apartment with my back to the wall and saying to myself, if I'm not going to die, I better figure out how to live because I can't keep living like this. Wow. So that moment I said to myself, I have to start over. I have to start at the beginning. And what do they do in kindergarten? And so I went and got gold stars in a calendar and still have this calendar, by the way, got gold stars in a calendar. And I said to myself, Rhonda, you have to find out if you're worth saving. 
And so what I did every day for 30 days is I gave myself a gold star for any time that I did anything good. And I mean, the things that I wrote on my calendar, like got angry, but didn't break anything, you know, like felt hurt, but didn't, you know, attack, you know, like these were just like basic little things, you know, there was nothing amazing on there, right. Uh, Per se in the big, big scheme of things, but all those little things at the end of the month, I had a calendar filled with stars and I thought, okay, okay, I'm worth saving. And so then I started creating exercises for myself because everything that I had tried, again, inspired me and motivated me, but it didn't do like what I said earlier. It didn't tell me how to go from A to A.1 to A.2, right? To to B, like really get me out of it. And so I made up exercises for myself and then people started noticing. And I was at church one day and this couple chased me out and said, what are you doing? There's something different about you. And And I want to say this is that when I was creating these exercises, I was embarrassed because, you know, my thought was therapy isn't working for me. That's how screwed up I am. So I was embarrassed by these exercises. It wasn't, I wasn't proud to create these. I was like, oh, I must be really screwed up. So when this couple followed me out and were like, what are you doing? I was like, nothing, nothing, nothing. I didn't do, I'm not doing nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> not that, nothing at all. Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, no, Rhonda, there's something different about you. And I'm like, what? You know, and like kind of getting caught with my hand in the cookie jar. And they basically like just kept on me until I told them what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm making up exercises. They said, oh, well, we want one. I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So I give them one. And the next week they come back to me and say, it's working. Can we have another one? I'm like, what? 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 And that was the first moment I thought maybe this wasn't just for me. It took wow. me many years after to actually start doing it, but it was the first moment when I went, oh, wow. You mean there are other people that could use this? It was mind blowing to me that anybody could use the work that I created for myself to save my life. Wow. So there's so much power in that. And and I love the fact that you were so transparent about every single emotion. Thank you for that. One thing that comes to my mind is during this time where you're at your darkest moment, where are your sisters? And did it feel like that you were alone? Because obviously they both still lost parents as well. Was there no type of bond or synergy that you all brought together? Or did it feel like, no, because you guys didn't actually witness it like me, even you don't understand me? There was a little bit of that at the end, like you didn't witness it. And we also scattered. So, you know, my parents died when I was 14. My little sister was 13. My older sister had just turned 18. And, you know, we stayed living in that house. They died in the driveways. We stayed living in that house for the next two years. And then when I was a senior in high school, Who came? Um, did you have like, because I'm nope. just kind of, Nope, nobody came, nobody came and no relatives came. So who was the responsible party? The 18 18- birth sister who was 18 years old. Wow. Okay. And, and so my, my older sister, Cindy, and what I'm saying to you every, you know, I've said to her, this is not, you know, like my sister, 18, she had gotten C's and D's in school, drank, you know, smoked. I was a straight A student, didn't drink or smoke. So when I, when my parents died, started raising myself because I can't go to my sister. She doesn't, I'm not going to take advice from her. Right. right? And I remember her telling me, I remember her trying to, you know, give me parental advice. I'd be like, "Mm, let's see, Hmm. you drink and smoke. Let's see. Hmm. You get straight D's and I get straight A's and I don't drink and smoke. I think I will lose myself. Right. (laughs) Right. 
So, and then my relatives literally scattered. I mean, this is, this is how crazy it was. I mean, which makes me, it, it's just it's shocking to me thinking about it now, but even my, like one of my uncles and my mother had like 11 brothers and sisters and my dad had, you know, five brothers and sisters and uh, nobody came, nobody helped and nobody gave us money. Nobody fed us. Nobody came over, nothing. And it, this is kind of like how it is. My uncle, one of my uncles, a couple of years ago when I'm visiting him goes, you know, where did you girls live after that? And I go, we lived in the same house, uncle. And he's like, well, I drove by once. And I'm like, great, thanks, thanks. Right. You know, but so nobody helped us. And so by the time I was um, 17, I had my own apartment. My sisters and I had kind of scattered, like my one sister went one place, one sister went another. My little sister, Linda, was loved by my father and adored by my father. So my sister's like, la, 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 don't talk about dad. Eh. She wanted to keep that love bond. My older sister was in her own survival mode. So, you know, so I, you know, I think we're, we were all on our own. We we're all trying to make it on Figure our it own. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, not, we, we talked to each other, but it wasn't like we were sharing things or anything like that, you know? Yeah, no. And I can imagine, you know, so that brings up, I guess that that explains it when I was thinking in the beginning where you said, hey, I grew up in this small town. And then all of a sudden I just make this huge jump and I go to LA. Right. And so it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, kind of why, because you were already from 17 on your own and trying to figure it all out. So I love the fact. Well, that I, got, I was going to say, I got to LA only because of one reason. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in, you know, taking minor theater, right? And wanting to be an actress, but not knowing how to do it. And I'm looking for a roommate. So God is good to me. Um, I'm looking for a roommate. And the roommate comes in as I'm interviewing roommates. And I go, well, oh, where are you from? Los Angeles. And she's an actress. Hmm. And I'm like, what? Right? And, uh, what are you kidding? And she goes, I'm living here for a year. My brother is dying. And when he passes, I'm going to go back to LA. And I'm like this, must Take have roommates. With, right. Take me with <laughs> right. you. Right. So she moved in. We were meant to leave like on June 15th, the next year. Her brother had not passed. She goes, Rhonda, we have to wait. And so July 15th comes and her brother hasn't passed. She goes, well, I have to wait. And I go, and I looked at her because I had had a boyfriend and he was you know, I was going to get married if, you know, I said, if I do not leave right this minute, I'm never, I'm never leave. leaving. I'm never leaving. I get that you can't go, but I have to go because I am going to be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, married to my college boyfriend and it'll be a nice life, but it won't be my life. And I had to leave. So I actually drove out to LA, not knowing one human being, not knowing a soul with no support. And, you know, with literally with $200 in my pocket, that I'd saved up and I, and I got to LA and, you know, somehow made it through. Wow. Wow. And, and, and so the reason why I love the fact that you told that last part, especially is because you could have, just like you said, I would have been living a nice life, but it would oh. not have been my life. Yeah. And I feel like that's what so many people do. They settle, even though knowing that, you know, our most valuable asset on this planet is our time. And it's a short amount of time because we never know when the end of our rope's coming. And so the fact that you said, listen, I got to go. Well, first off, I wonder, did your boyfriend at the time, did he go with you or did he just allow no. you to leave? No, he just was like, you know, no, we had had some, we, we'd had some problems, but he was courting me back and I knew he was going to ask me to marry him because we'd been together for a few years. 
And again, it would have been a nice life. He was, uh, he, his father owned like five jewelry stores. I could have been a jeweler's wife. You know, they were like lovely. I could have played golf and just gone to the country clubs and been, you know, a philanthropist, right? And, and again, from a little town from Hancock, Michigan, that would have been an amazing leap, right? But I knew that I would die. I knew that I would die if I lived there. So, I mean- And you mean he, internally? Internally, like your soul I, would, would die. I would die. My soul would die. Hmm. And so I literally, when we said we're going to leave July 15th, I literally got in my car without her and drove. And I listened to, you're going to love this. I listened to, oh my God, what's the song? Yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. New Attitude. Okay, Um, yeah. New Attitude? Yeah. I listened to it nonstop from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Los Angeles, California on repeat. And back then you had to have cassettes, right? Right. Cassettes and eight tracks, right? But I would just play it over and over again because I knew if I did not change who I was on that car ride, you know, I was screwed. And then when I got to LA, it was kind of like, phew, I made it here. And then I froze for two years, right? Yeah. Now, what do I do? Now, I love it that you told that story and that's a great backstory and it helps to segue into what I'm going to ask now, which is, how did you overcome the self-talk and the fear? Because so many people, they have that right now. It's in a world where right now we're, right now, depending on when you're listening to this, right? We're in a pandemic, right? And we don't know how long it will go on. And even before this, people had fear. Fear is the number one reason stopping people from going after their dreams or their business goals or whatever else. And so for you being in a brand new city, brand new state with a brand new career and in a brand new situation, what is the one thing that helps you to start to live fearlessly? Was it a person? Was it a, a mental? It was a, you know, I was going to say it was a series of events. You know, I think the first thing I think, you know, people ask me, like, what are the most important days of your life? Well, obviously, my parents dying is the most important day of my life. But my most important day of changing my life was the first time. The first big thing that I did was get sober. Hmm. You know, without my sobriety, without getting sober, I would not be who I am. I would not be here today. The next most important thing was I finally forgave my father and mother and finally myself. So, you know, the day they died, you know, at the time I was supposed to, I was going to be a minister. I just announced to my family six months before that I was going to be a minister. So the day my parents died, I forgave my father and forgave my mother immediately. Like I was like, forgive, you know, but I, but you know, you, you, you think you forgive, but you don't really forgive. And forgiveness is a multi-layered process. And so when I really truly forgave my father, the nightmares stopped and those nightmares haunted me every night. Every night my father was chasing me in my dreams and shooting at me and I had bullets in my, you know, literally bullets in me every morning. So, you know, stopping those dreams and forgiving my father, again, another huge moment. And then the other moment was when I really- well, uh, and I'm so sorry, but yeah, I, I want to tap into that so we don't forget about it because there's a lot, we hear that all the time, right? Forgiveness, forgive that person because they are actually made you who you are. If that didn't happen, you wouldn't be the character that you are today, good, bad, whatever, right? But you said that it's a multi-layered process. You can't just say, oh, I forgive. Yeah, how no. does someone break down that? How do they even understand what the layers are so they could start to be able to truly forgive? Yeah, I love this topic. Thank you so much for asking me about this because I actually 
created an exercise that is the the thing that got me through. And again, I'm I'm not Rhonda Britton yet, i.e. master coach, you know, Emmy Award winner, all those things yet, right? I'm I'm just Rhonda sitting on the floor of my studio apartment struggling and trying to survive. And I, I remember people would be like, write a forgiveness letter. And I'm like, okay, well, that wasn't helpful. You know, I mean, it's nice, but it's not helpful. <laughs> and so I made up an exercise. You know, I always say God gave it to me. Like I got made up an exercise and that exercise helped me to get to the place that, that I was finally able to forgive my father. And I have a fantastic story about the, the kind of the day that I forgave him, but going back to the multi-layer. So there's so much I can say about this. I like to say that let's think of us as a human being, right? Let's think of us. We have two arms, we have two legs, right? We have a heart. And I always like to say that people think that they have forgiven and they're always shocked that, you know, 10 years later, five years later, that feeling of rage comes up again, or the feeling of disappointment or heartbreak comes up again. Well, this is how I like to think of it. You can only forgive based on your level of awareness. Mm. So the day my parents died, here I am, a Bible God girl, going to be a minister. Of course, I'm going to forgive. I mean, of course, right? That is what I was made to do. So, you know, that day the minister came over and, you know, because they're going to do the burial and everything. And they're asking us, you know, hey, they didn't even like, I don't even think they asked us how we were doing, to be honest. But it's like, I forgave. Like I said, yeah, I've forgiven him. Yes, I went skating the night they died. And my friends were all coming to skating and I went skating. So every Sunday I went skating and now I go skating because I'm like, I have to do something normal. All my friends are coming, crying, bawling, and like, uh, and I'm like this. Oh no, I'm fine. I've forgiven, right? So I forgave at my level of awareness. When I turned 20, 21, and I started going to another, you know, I forgave at, a, at like a little bit more, right? And then as I've grown and shifted, as I become more awake and more aware, I like to say there's pockets of you know feelings and emotions hidden inside of us that we don't even see or have access to because we can't because we're not awake enough to see them. But when we wake up, different parts of us kind of like blossom and open and go, okay, now you're ready to heal this part of the story. Now you're ready to heal this. So it's not, it's not that you're screwed up or bad that these things kind of rotate through your life. It's actually validation and affirmation that you're growing because mm. that wouldn't come up if you did it. Right. You know, so I think if people can get their head around that, they will no longer beat themselves up and be like, I can't believe this is happening to me again. Why is my father coming up? You know, it's like, yeah, it only proves that you're growing. Right. right? And, I, and I love that you said that. But let me ask you this, because what I heard is you said, you know, when I turned 20 to 21, obviously, that is, you know, five, six years later. Right. Six, seven years later. How much of this is just you have to be patient with time? Because for a lot of people, can this happen? Can anyone uncover these additional pockets within the next three months? Or is it like, listen, you just have to acknowledge with yourself, it is going to take time. I think that I think there's two things. Yes to that. And there's a way to support yourself, right? So, you know, I'm talking to a private client yesterday and she wants to build a relationship with her mother who's very difficult to talk to, et cetera, et cetera. And we talk about how she needs to move through forgiveness before she can actually heal that relationship because she's still going to get on the phone and be angry with her, right? She has mm -hmm. to get on the other side in order to actually love somebody who betrayed her or hurt her, right? She has to, she has to go through the healing process. So the exercise that I created can help kind of jumpstart that, right? And you can't... Every time I forgave, I thought I forgave, right? So when people say to me, 
oh, this is, somebody said to me the other day, oh, I know I'm on the deepest layer now. I'm at the core of my being. It's like, maybe, maybe not, right? Right, right? like, okay, you can say that to yourself if it makes you feel okay, but I don't know about that because aren't you gonna keep growing? Aren't you gonna keep exposing parts of yourself and being willing to be more vulnerable and more courageous and more you know, risk-taking? Because that's gonna expose parts of you that you don't even know exist, right? right? So you know, on one hand, every time you forgive, you think you're done. You're like, well, done, right? But it's just the awareness of knowing, well, I'm done for now at this level of awakening, like this level of, of, of growth where I am right now. And the exercise I created, I'm happy to share, really propelled me forward in order to forgive my father. And then of course, to forgive my mother, because, you know, people think like, oh, why'd you have to forgive your mother? She was murdered. It's like, nah, you know, you have to forgive the martyr. Yeah, I got to take mother off the pedestal and quit making her the victim and actually have her part of the play. Right. Right. And then I had to forgive myself for not doing anything because I was the last one I could forgive. My father was actually the easiest person to forgive. And then my mother was the, the second hardest, and then I was, of course, the hardest of all. Hey, what's up, Dream Builder? Have you been getting any value out of this episode? Would you like to get more exclusive content just like this delivered right to your inbox? If so, head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com and you can sign up for the email list and that will give you access to exclusive content and more interviews just like this that's going to be delivered only to our tribe. So head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. Let's get back to it. And so for that exercise, we're actually going to see, for anybody that's listening um, right now, we're going to see if we can get it in the show notes. So we're going to see if we can get something. So then you'll be able to go to it. We'll have a link to that exercise that you'll be able to go and have access to. And I'm sure if you're someone who's dealing with a problem of forgiveness right now, this can be just, just tremendous for you. And I'm excited to see it as well. One thing that, that I wanted to ask you about is as you started to you know, was it the little, was there one little win that allowed you to say, listen, I am where I'm supposed to be and I am destined for greatness, right? Like you've been featured on Oprah and, and all these other things. Was it like the moment that someone from Oprah heard your story or New York times or whatever else it was, right? And then all of a sudden you, you went on there, you, you told your story to the best of what you could and the world loved it and so much feedback came back of, oh my God, this is how much you've helped me. Was there one time like that that you said, listen, it's time to embrace it because I am where I'm supposed to be? Yes, there was a moment. And it definitely was, you know, so, you know, like I, I mentioned before, like I'm a God girl. And after my parents died, I couldn't use the word God for 20 years. Like I, I if you said the word God to me, I'd be like, light universe, source, oh, don't say the word God. Because, you know, I was going to be a minister and I really believe that they died because of me, you know, because this is a test from God to see how faithful I am. Right. So I was really like, God, thank you so much. But these tests are too big. I'm not talking to you. Right. So here I am. I'm in living in Los Angeles. I'm actually have left acting. And working, doing some public relations. And one of my clients is one of the very first life coaches. Because there's, you know, like there were at the time, there, was, there wasn't an industry called coaching. But he was one of the very first. And he was one of my clients. And I remember he would always tell me, Rhonda, you're going to be a better coach than me. And I'd look at him like, you are a crazy person. Because remember, I've got this horrible past and I'm still screwed up. So, but he would always say to me, Rhonda, you're going to be a better coach than me. Rhonda, you're going to be a better coach than me. And two things happened kind of simultaneously. 
One is I got him a speaking event to speak. There's something called the Learning Annex, you know, before, and it was an amazing place that you could go and speak. And, you know, they would do all the enrollment. So I got him a gig there. And so he went to go speak there. And he, like, there was maybe 20, 30 people in the room. And I was there with him. It was his first time. And as he goes up, I introduce him. And as he goes up to speak, and again, this man is brilliant, beyond brilliant. As the minute he goes up to speak, he literally says one sentence and runs out of the room. And I'm like, what? just happened. And I'm like, I just minute and I'll go back and say what's going on. And I follow him and he's in the bathroom and he has food poisoning. And he is literally like, well, let's just say it's not a pretty sight and he's no way coming back. Right. And I went, oh, okay. So I went up in front of the room and taught the class. And while I was teaching the class, and again, I'd never like this. This is not. This is not. This is not something. You know. That you know, I am not him, right? right? Like, right. yeah. Right? I'm the publicist, right? Right. <laughs> right. This is crazy, right? But I go up and I start talking about him and start talking about his work and start just talking about blah blah blah. And I realize this is one of the little things that happened. I realize that I actually. People are more interested in hearing me talk about it than him because he's almost too smart. Hmm. Like, you know what I mean? He's, he's so smart that you, you, sometimes you don't understand him because he's just so smart. Feels right? like he's talking over your head. Yeah. yeah where growing up in Upper Michigan and me going like, hi, you know, Sally and Peter went to the store is really helpful. Right. 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 <laughs> you know, basically, right. And so my ignorance and my lack of sophistication actually supported me then. So that moment I realized was like, what? Like, what? Wow. You know, and like basically everybody signed up for his class because of me and it was awesome. The other thing happened is that uh, his name is Paul. Paul and I are sitting around his uh, house. We're brainstorming, got his whiteboard out. And again, I'm not thinking anything about me and we're working on his business. And, and this is the miracle that happened in my life. So I'm just going to get a little woo-woo now for a second. So everybody who's not woo-woo, shut your ears. So I'm sitting on the couch. He's standing up on the whiteboard. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see that the world has opened up. A book comes out and basically goes, shuts and goes up, goes back up into heaven. And I'm like, what just happened? And I literally turn around Casanova, I literally turned around because that can't be for me. There's nobody else in the room. I look at Paul. He's still talking. He doesn't know what happened. And I'm like, holy crapola. I run to have a meeting with my minister because I had a, thank God I had something scheduled. And I go, okay, this thing happened to me. And she says to me, well, that's your call. Hmm. You've been called. And I'm like, yeah, but I haven't finished college. I left with three credits short. I have to go finish my three credits. I have to go get my master's. I have to get a PhD and I have to write a book. And maybe in seven or eight years, I can do this. And she just kept saying, it's your call. You've gotten called. Like you need to, you know, like it's time. And she goes, I, I just looked at her. I go, I, I, I have nothing. Like I've got nothing. Right. Like, I'm, right. like you don't understand. Right. Like, and she goes, Rhonda, you are ready. If you got the call, it means you're ready. And I'm like, what? So I, wrestle with this concept and I go to Paul who's my you know who I'm working who's my client who's my client yeah and it took me about six months to finally go well maybe I could have a client because so I basically became his first coaching student you know trained coach 
and started having sessions and would have a session and run to him and be like, what do I do now? And then I'd run back and then I'd run back to him. And, you know, for six months, I like didn't trust myself, didn't know what I was doing. And after about six months, I started trusting myself because I had done a tremendous amount of work on myself. I'd already been creating exercises myself for, for years. Yeah. So, for I, him and other right? so I'd already done all this stuff, but it didn't, I didn't know that I could apply it to other people. And I didn't understand that I knew this stuff. I didn't, I didn't believe I had anything. I didn't believe I had anything good to give because all I did was look at my past, but also I looked at how my life wasn't what I thought it should be. So I compared myself to a fantasy version of myself. Right. And until I reached that fantasy version, I had no right to do it. And because of my past, I had no right to do it because I didn't get my life together. Right. So I kept on looking at this fantasy future this fantasy person I thought I should be, and then the past, and both of those things said, you are not good enough right now to step out. And so for six months, I wrestled with that and just worked with it. And I really did wrestle with it. And finally, just step by step, started coming out and going, well, what if, what if this is what I'm meant to do? And maybe it doesn't matter if I'm any good at it in the beginning. What if, what if, what if my past doesn't matter? And what if my, fa- my fantasy person what if that never happens? Right. Like, so, so I just started, you know, bit by bit. And then, you know, momentum, as you know, is a wonderful thing because as I started doing it, I started building momentum. And then within like a year, I had my own practice within two years, I was, you know, speaking within three years, I was, you know, having workshops after four years, you know, people were asking me for a book five years. I'd written a book six years. I was on a tour six year. I started, uh, I was on my first television show, right? I was right. the first person on TV in the world, but it was all because I was completely devoted and I knew that I was really on a mission. It was not about me. I always say, people always ask me, how did you get, how'd you be so successful so fast? I said, I put my blinders on. I didn't give a shit about what anybody else was doing. Excuse my language. And I just knew that I had to do what I had to do is what I was called to do. I had to do. And um, so I put my blinders on and just did the work. Didn't care about my self-esteem anymore. Didn't care if I had low self-esteem. Didn't care about my confidence. Didn't, could give a crap about that. I had work to do and the work would hone me, you know, would hone me and make me who I was meant to be. But I had to do the work. And that's what I, that's what saved me. Got it. Wow. There's, there's so much there. And the biggest thing that, that I love that you said was I put on my blinders because in the world that we're living in today, that's very, very hard to do because social media is hitting you, right? The TV's hitting you. Everyone has a cell phone in their hand and there's some type of an app that has some type of ads on it that in the sense they want to solve a problem for you, but how do you solve a problem first? Just like you said, you had to become aware. So for so many people, they only know from their level of awareness. So for you as a business owner, who's trying to advertise, you first have to let someone know that there is a problem. So from the consumer side, you're first seeing that problem and you maybe don't have that mindset strength right? To say, listen, I'm not going to be degraded by this, but I'm still going to keep on my blinders because I know that my time is coming if I could just keep focused on it. But I feel like that there's so much there that a lot of people can't focus. How How do you even stay focused now in today's world of not chasing a shiny object and stay in your course? 
Yeah, I mean, it's this is exactly, I think, the problem that most entrepreneurs are dealing with right now because there's just too much information. You know, I started my business when there, you know, there was, I had email and I had my first website, you know, two years later, but I was one of the first adopters of websites and email. And the first time that I did email, I would give a talk to a community college or give a talk to the Lions Club. And I would talk anywhere. I, I, didn't, I didn't care where I talked. I would talk for free for two years. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to talk for free, right? They have this vision of in their mind that, well, I should be paid. It's like, well, well, I talked for three year, two years for free and I started making little products, you know, like a cassette tape here and a, and a little book here and I printed it and I was making $20,000 a month speaking for free. And so, you know, people are so afraid and so to, unpack that because people want to know now if I'm listening to that and I'm like, well, how did you make $20,000 a month if you're speaking for free? What did that look like? Yeah. So, so the first year that I was in business, like I said, I mean, the first six months I was in business, I had two clients and I, and I, and I charged $25 and I drove to them and I live in Los Angeles. So, you know, I had no money. Right. And I could not get anybody else to hire me those six months. It was like, what, why, why is this not working? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the six month mark, I kind of figured it out. Like I, I started talking to people differently and within literally uh, within days, I had 20 clients. And it changed, obviously, my whole everything for me because now I have 20 clients, I have a full practice. And then, like I said, I was doing one-on-ones and one of my clients said, hey, could you teach me, to, you know, could you come and talk to my client and my students and, you know, blah, blah. So it happened piecemeal by piecemeal. So I think the problem with today is that we see the, everybody's end result and we go, well, I have to reach that level instead of recognizing that, no, it really is stepping stone. So hmm. my first thing was, private coaching. That's all I cared about. I wasn't going to speak or train. I mean, that wasn't even in my bandwidth, right? It was just building my one-on-one coaching practice. And then for my one-on-one coaching practice, somebody from the outside came to me and said, Hey, will you come and teach my employees? And I didn't think about teaching workshops, but then I went and did that. And I was like, Oh, I like this. And then from there, it led to speaking, right? It led to each thing unfolded. I think everybody's now trying to reach like get the, you know, gold ribbon, you know, get the, get the prize right when right. they start. And they're comparing themselves to somebody like me, who's been in business 25 years. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not how this goes down. You know, right. it took me, it took me two, you know, six months to build a full-time practice. It took me two years to teach my first workshop. It took me three years to speak and speaking of speaking. So what I used to do, and you can do this easily now, I did it with cassette recorders. Every time I spoke for free, I would record myself. I would bring all my gadgets with me. And back then it was all these gadgets. Now it's just a cell phone, you know, and uh, a mic. That's all you need, right? Right. And I would record myself. And whenever there was a really good talk, I would label it something, you know, expectations. And I would write Rhonda Britton live, never edit it, never edit it, because that would cost money. And I would make cassette tapes and I would put the label Rhonda Britton live. So they weren't expecting editing. And then I would go to the next event and sell that cassette tape. Hmm. And then I kept on having good talks. So I, by the end, before I got my book deal, I had like four cassette series. I had two printed books that I created. And then I created packages. So I knew that if I was speaking to 100 people, I knew I was going to sell 30% of the room. I knew I was going to make, you know, $3,000 to $5,000. I knew it. Right. So, you know, so I, had, I would come in. And again, again, people aren't willing to do this because they compare themselves to 
you know, the bigger, the, the, the big people out there that are, you know, uh, they can't them to Tony Robbins, right? Instead, you know, I am here with my little cart, bringing in my books and bringing in my cassettes and I set up my table, right? And I, you know, and I have my little contest about a private session and get everyone's business cards. And when I was teaching workshops, the number one thing that built my business was flyers. I put flyers everywhere, right? But everybody's trying to, you know, kind of get ahead of it, right? Like, and again, not that we don't want to use Zoom and not that we don't want to use technology, but we don't want to be, we don't want to let technology decide our business. You know, again, we, it's, it's, it's technology's here to be an asset, but it's, it doesn't have to, there's a way, lots of ways to build a business now without using technology at all, you know? So, so it's kind of like, that's how I did it. And then I would, you know, and I spoke everywhere. I mean, I would speak three to five times a week. I didn't, I lived in Los Angeles. So I would go all the way to Santa Barbara, two hours North. I'd go to San Diego, two hours South. I didn't care who you were. I was speaking. I spoke to, like I said, chambers of commerce, you know, Alliance clubs, community colleges. I didn't care. I didn't, you ask me, I'm there. Was and, it just sharing your story? Because people want to know, okay, how are you speaking? Was it just sharing your story or were you, were you sharing, you know, an actual formula of how someone else, like which, what was it that you were speaking about when you first started out? When I first started out, by this time, I had started developing Fearless Living. So I had started unpacking all the exercises I'd done for myself. And that's what I was, you know, training people how to do. I had developed something called the wheel. So my methodology, one of the things that you said earlier, just to go back for a second, is you said, you know, people aren't aware of their problem. And, and a lot of my marketing and a lot of things that I do are just helping people understand they have fear because most people, like me included, I didn't think I had any fear when I was like going living in denial. Well, it just fear people don't like I grew up. I didn't we didn't talk about fear. We never said I'm afraid or I'm scared because that was weak. Right. You know, so I never said I'm afraid or I'm scared. So I am the one that's shocked that I'm teaching fear and that fear has become, you know, like that's the core of everything. So one of the first things I have to do is actually just talk about fear and what is fear and help people understand that they have fear. So I would give them a quiz at the beginning of my talk. I would give them a quiz. I, for the first two years of speaking, I never told my story because I was like, nobody wants to hear that stupid story. Like nobody wants to get depressed and hear that story. Right. And they're going to think I'm crazy if they hear that story. So I would just talk about the tools that I used. And then by this time I had clients. So then I would tell them client stories and I would say what I'm doing with my clients. And every time I spoke, it's like, you know, maybe I'd get a laugh here and I'd be like, Ooh, I got a laugh there. And I started building my keynote talk by talk by, you know, talk by talk by talk. So here I would say something, people would be like, oh, and I pull that out and go like, oh, that was good. And I'd use it the next time. So I didn't sit down and write my keynote. That keynote was built every time I gave a talk and something hit the audience. And now my keynote, I mean, I've had people all over the world tell me I'm one of the best speakers they've ever seen because that, that, that keynote was built from my own guts, from my own, it wasn't a, it wasn't a theory, right? It wasn't, it wasn't my head. It was my heart doing it. Right. So, so it just evolved over time. So, so that's how I, you know, gave my talks and then I would have my little basket with me, you know, my little cart and yeah. my, and then two years later, flyers. Yeah, my flyers, my, you know, right, my little bowl them to put their business cards in to win a session with me. You know, I carried all this crap all over the place, had it in my car all the time. And then and then the the thing that kind of catapulted me, because you said a minute ago, did I tell my story? I have a, had a friend of mine at the time that was a speaking coach, never used her professionally, but she said to me, you got to tell your story. And I'm like, again, nobody wants to hear that. And she bet me, right? She goes, I bet you 
it's going to make a difference. So I had two speeches back to back where the same outfit gave the same speech. The only difference was I get told my story and I told it really bad. Like I told it like this, my father murdered, my mother committed suicide. Like that's like how I told it. Like it was horrible. Right. (laughs) I mean, literally like I just kind of threw it out because I didn't know how to tell a story back then. Right. Right. So the first time I gave the talk, I did not tell my story. Like three people came up to me afterwards and asked questions and, you know, other people bought stuff and it was, you know, kind of like the normal thing. Next talk I gave, same thing, like I said, except this time I told my story really poorly and just like dumped it out. And I had a line around the block. Mm. I mean, literally a line you couldn't see the end of. And I went, what just happened? And I realized that the secrets we keep are the stories we must tell. Wow. Love it. To say that again, the secrets that we we keep are the stories we must tell. Wow. And why and and why is that do you think? Because for us we want to, we want to, we want to protect it. We want to protect ourselves, we want to protect our emotion. Why should we tell our stories? Cuz this is something that I've struggled with as well. Of course, before the call, you heard my story, but for very long and even as I told it, I shortened up in in really 3 minutes, right? And and because of almost like what you say now, obviously I know how to tell my story. But it's still that mindset of like, do people want to hear my story? Or is it looked at as a woe is me and now I'm playing the victim when people already have their own problems? Yeah. Oh, yeah. People on social media, people have said to me, oh, you're making money on your mother's store. And it's like, "Mm, okay, like like that mentality tells me who you are. It has nothing says nothing about me. Hmm. Right. Like I tell my story because I've realized that. If I don't tell my story, if I don't tell you what happened to me, you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily trust me. You don't know where I've come from and you don't know what a miracle it is that I'm here now. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you also know that you can do it too. Like anybody who hears my story is always like, oh, if you can do it, I can do it too. Right. Right. It's like, yeah, you can totally do it. And again, my story isn't something, you know, I have a three minute version. I have a 20 minute version, right? Depending on how long I have in a keynote. And, and, you know, I tell my story, I don't start with it because I've learned that when I start with it, people just stare at me the whole time and they're like, are you okay? You know? So I, I teach for 40 minutes and 45 minutes an hour before I ever tell my story. So they're like, oh my God, this content's so amazing. Ah, I gotta have it. And, you know, help them understand how fear is. And then they start realizing they have fear and they're like, oh my God. And then I tell my story and then they're like, what? And, um, and, and telling my story was healed me from a level of shame that I didn't even know I had a level of shame and embarrassment. It freed me. It freed me. It's like the story's out now. I don't have to hide anymore that my father murdered my mother. I don't have to hide anymore that I didn't save her. You know, I don't have to hide anymore that I had three suicide attempts and three DUIs anymore. I don't have to, you know, cover it up and pretend. Right. right. And, and so I remember that's one of the reasons I went on Oprah, by the way, is the first time I went on Oprah. I remember when I told my story to Oprah, I finally felt like the, the, the weight of the world was like, shoo, everybody knows my story. OK, now I can get on with it. Right. But our stories, the secrets we keep. I want you to think of them as like little plugs in your energy levels in your like little things that are stopping your energy from, you know, we're energy beings. 
and every secret you're afraid to tell. And again, you're not going to tell all your secrets. I don't, I mean, I have lots of secrets. I don't quote unquote use in my stories, but I've also told them to somebody, right? Like every secret I have, I've shared with somebody may not be the same people, right? You can share, you can spread it around. Right. There are no secrets that I, that I have just for myself anymore. Right. And just think of that every time you're trying to have a secret, there's a part of you that is unexpressed. There's a part of you that is got a little plug in it. You can't use that energy. And that energy is, you know, kind of turning inward instead of outward. So, you know, every secret is, is eating you up a little bit. I love it. I love it, man. I've gotten so much inspiration and wisdom from this. And it's just sparked me to ask a question, which is not something that I typically ask on here, but I feel like um, this is appropriate. Let's say that in 15 years from now, right? If, if for God, you know, God forbid that something was to happen, you know, to where you see that you really only have about a couple days left, right? On this planet. You can't take any of your books with you. You can't take any of your recognition with you, but you can, you're left with three post-it notes. And again, I'm just making this up, but I think that you're going to give one of the best answers that I maybe have ever heard in in terms of this. So you're left with three post-it notes and this is three wisdom quotes or, you know, signs of wisdom that you can leave to the world to be remembered by. Mm. What are those three things that you're going to leave to try to make this world a better place when it's all said and done? What will people remember you for those three things? Well, I know on the first one, I will say this, boy, boy, three. Okay. So the first one, I would say, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just fear. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just fear. Maybe I would leave the one that I just shared, which is the secrets that you hide are the stories you must tell, right? And then, boy, the third one coming up for me right now, this is coming through me based on the conversation we have, is like, you are worth forgiving. So yeah, I think you are worth forgiving. And uh, because I think that's one of the hardest things people wrestle with is they haven't forgiven themselves for what they still haven't done, even though they have a dream, they haven't forgiven themselves for having a dream and not acting on it. Right. Hmm. Right. So a lot of people have a dream. They're not acting on it and they have to forgive themselves. I remember I was working with an entrepreneur and he said to me, so I'm working with this group of entrepreneurs and one guy stands up and is like, okay, well, I need, I, I need to stop. So I need to solve this problem. And I'm like, well, what problem? He goes, well, I make a lot of money. Then I lose it. I make a lot of money. I lose it. I make a lot of money. I lose it. And he goes, and it's the same thing my grandfather did and my same thing my father did. Make a lot of money, lose it. And I looked at him and I said, you must forgive them. And he's like, what? Because he wanted a strategy, right? He wanted me to tell him, right? I said, you must forgive them because you're carrying on in order to connect to your mother, your father and your grandfather, you're, you're, you're holding the line. Like you're doing the same thing they did. It's a way of love. Like you're loving them by doing that. You're accepting them by doing that. You're, you're connecting, right? So you have to forgive them and you have to decide that you are willing to break the family chain in order to set your own path. But the only way to do that is to forgive them. And he's like looking at me wanting money tips. And I go, trust me, when you forgive them, you will make money and you will keep it. I got it. I love it. The last thing that I want to say is someone out there right now is super inspired by you. They can't wait to reach out to you. 
They can't wait to connect with you. They can't wait to get mentorship and some type of wisdom and guidance from you. But they have that little voice in your head. I'm sure you know what little voice I'm talking about. But that little voice in their head tells them that maybe they're not strong enough, they're not smart enough, or they just don't even have enough resources. What's the one thing that you would say to that person to get them to just take action? Mm. Wow, such good questions you have. If they were in front of me right now and they desperately wanted to change their life, but they had not done it yet, they've been, you know, on hold, right? They've been quote unquote stuck, right? This is what's moving through me right now. And if you ask me tomorrow, maybe something else would move through me. But right now what's moving through me is it isn't, you know, it is not you. Hmm. It is not you that's holding you back. It is fear. And you, my friend, must decide. Is fear going to run your life or are you going to run your life? Now, I'm going to teach you and show you and guide you and coach you to help you understand how your fear works so you never are held back again. Because it is not your fault that your past happened. It is fear trying to keep you safe. And so I have a pathway to take you from A to A.1 to A.2 to B to D to Z all the way across. And I'm going to take you. I'm going to hold your hand throughout the whole thing because I got you. And there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with you. It's just fear. And you get to decide, is fear going to make your next move or are you going to make your next move? Are you going to decide or is fear going to decide? There you have it. I love it. I love it. And I hope that someone's listening to this right now that they put that stamp down and they say it's going to be me and I'm going to decide that fear will not overtake my life. It's done it for too long. And now it's the time for me to make that decision to go after my dreams and my goals. This has been a phenomenal episode. As I said that it would be in the beginning, I had no doubt about it, just because of the energy that you brought from the moment you hopped into the room. For anybody that wants to stay connected with you, of course, I said we're going to drop the links in the show notes so anybody will be able to download it and also um, be able to get more information from you. But if they just wanted to connect with you, where can they find you at? Fearlessliving.org. Just go on over to fearlessliving.org. And of course, I have, you know, my Facebook and all my social media under Rhonda Britton, R-H-O-N-D-A-B-R-I-T-T-E-N. But go over to fearlessliving.org and click on the link, Get Fearless. And, you know, that's your first, one of your first steps. You know, you can join us. And of course, join our community over at Fearless You Facebook group. But fearlessliving.org has, you know, everything that you need to figure out your next step. And coaches and support. And I, I just know that go in my YouTube channel and watch videos and get your questions answered. I mean, I'm here for you. And I've always said, no matter what your what, no matter what your money is, no matter what your time is, fearless living has a way for you to start on this path, regardless of your money and your time. We have three things. We have masterminds, we have everything in between. So there is a way for you to move forward. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for coming on. And I can't wait to have you back. I mean, I know I'm no Oprah, but if you give us a round two, you know, after, you know, you, you, I know that you're releasing something like a 10 part series um, that you were talking about. And I don't know if you want to talk about that or if not, people can go to fearless, sign up for the, uh, the subscriber. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what, if I can give a gift, I'd be more than happy to give a gift if you, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and we'll um, drop it in the show notes, but yeah, feel free to, yeah. to talk so let, about it. Yeah, let me, you know, during this time, like we said, that we're in the middle of this global pandemic and 
hopefully, you know, you're staying safe and healthy is I would love to give the gift. I have a, I just, you know, God downloaded me this idea of creating this uh, 10 part series, the top 10 fears. And the one I'd love to give away is how to overcome fear of the unknown. Hmm. And you can go to fearlessliving.org forward slash gift, G-I-F-T, and you can go grab it and you can devour it. It's a mini course. It's got a video and audio and fear buster exercise. It's got everything that you need to start moving forward and looking at the unknown because truly, I guess this might be another post-it note, is freedom equals your capacity to live in the unknown. Hmm. Freedom equals your capacity to live in the unknown. So the more that you can live in the unknown, the more risks you're going to take. People get stopped. Fear says, I don't know enough, right? I stood, I stood paralyzed in my bedroom, my little studio apartment in LA for two years because I didn't know. The unknown paralyzed me. And usually the unknown is what paralyzes most people on some level, right? It's, it's that fear that we don't even, don't even know is happening. So go on over to fearlessliving.org forward slash gift, G-I-F-T. Download. It's a mini course. You're going to have to put your name and email in in order to get access to the course itself. And so do it, go and get it, start the journey, start learning about fear and how it works in you because you are not, there's nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with you, it's just fear. My father did not kill my mother because he was being fearless. My father killed my mother because he was afraid. My mother stayed with my father for 20 years that he was, he was afraid and fear almost killed me. So fear does not have to stop you. I know the way, join me, come on now. Yeah, there you have it. Well, thank you again for coming on and we appreciate it. We look forward to watching your success and your growth as well. Thanks again, Rhonda. Thank you. Be fearless. That's all we got for this episode. Thank you for sticking around. That truly means a lot to me. And hopefully that means that we delivered massive value on this one. If you haven't already, the way that you could say thank you to myself and the team is just by heading over to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating. That's what iTunes loves to see. That's how we get out there even more. And I would definitely, definitely be grateful for it. I know the team would as well. Do me a favor and head on over to dreamnationpodcast.com. That's where you're going to be able to find all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode, as well as more exclusive content. And you'll also be able to sign up to our email list where we have more exclusive content. And we always love to hear the feedback from you all because you're our tribe. So remember, in the dream we trust, we'll see you on the flip side. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.